Good morning. It's great to see all you here today. I want to begin uh, with just a short word of prayer. So if you'd indulge me, please, and bow your heads. Lord God, I want to thank you uh, for this opportunity again to speak to this topic matter of what it means to be unordinary as we follow after you. Would you just grace this moment? Would you fill it with your presence? Lord Jesus, I pray uh, for hearts of stone to be turned to hearts of flesh and for stopped up ears to be unstopped. I pray for you, Holy Spirit, to bring the words of Jesus to bear in our minds as only you can do. I just pray, Lord, for you just to move mightily in our midst and for this to be uh, a special moment in the week of the folks here that are present. I pray this in your name and by your, uh, by your blood, Jesus. Amen. Have any of you ever heard the song sung and made popular by Frank Sinatra, I Did It My Way. Anybody know that song? It's kind of an old song. Uh, as I was researching it a little bit, I realized too that Elvis Presley sang this song a lot. So some of you who maybe aren't familiar with Sinatra would be familiar with Elvis Presley singing, I Did It My Way. But anyway, Elvis, uh, excuse me, Frank Sinatra was this uh, American singer-actor who was really popular in the mid-20th century. And he, it is said that this song became an anthem of self-determination um, that reflected the culture really well. Listen to some of the words. I'm just going to read one, one verse. It goes like this. And now the end is here, and so I face that final curtain. My friend, I'll make it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. But now hear this. And more, much more, I did it. I did it my way. And therein is the problem. Amen? Every, 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 every verse is like that. And it ends with, and much more, I did it my way. Isn't that not Americanism in a nutshell? I'm doing life my way. Um, according to NPR, Frank Sinatra's My Way is American's anthem of self-determination. And Frank Sinatra himself came to hate the song. He didn't like the song. And My Way represents the quintessentially um, American outlook that nothing in life matters any more than doing it on your own terms, which is absurd, which is so wrong, which is problematic. When I was in high school or college, I can't remember which, now at this point they all blend into one, um, in an English class I read Paradise Lost. Anybody read Paradise Lost? Here is part of your, your growing up in school uh, curriculum. Anyway, it was a, a 17th century epic poem written by John Milton. And interestingly enough, at one point in this uh, writing, uh, Satan is talking, supposedly, and he says this, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. And the reality, though, when we, we hear something like that, is that Nobody reigns in hell, amen? And if you're going to hell as a person, it's not going to be a place where you have much to say so. And even for Satan himself, we know that his destiny is the lake of fire. According to Revelation 20.10, his final destination will be forever tormented in the lake of fire. And so what happens in, in our culture is that we get kind of bombarded with these thoughts and these ideas like from Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way to, to John Milton's, you know, declaration by Satan that, that I'd rather rule in hell than, than, than serve in heaven. And they begin to influence us wrongly. And people begin to believe that uh, first, I'm in charge of my life. <laughs> I'm not what I once was. I'm much older. And the older I get, the more I know I'm not in charge of much of anything. How about you? 
It's just the way life is. And you can fret and worry about it, but you really don't control all that much. You might as well just admit it. Get over it and get on with your life. And, and then there's this foolishness that I see all the time. People foolishly say, well, I'm just going to live life my way and God will have to deal with it. Well, he will deal with it. But it isn't the way you think he'll deal with it. There'll be severe consequences for those who reject Christ. And for us Christ followers, we can't succumb to that kind of thinking. I see a lot of Christians go down a path that's really wayward with the rationalization that, well, God's a forgiving and merciful God. I'll just do this wrong thing and he'll forgive me. What in the world? That will never lead to a good outcome. Um, so we're on week three of this series. What it means uh, to be unordinary, the art of being unordinary, uh, reimagining life. And uh, what I'm hoping happens in these messages is that we begin to rethink and reorient uh, our, our Christian faith and, and how, how we live it out and, and, and do it. Um, um, and today you probably already figure out what the message is about. We got to come to God in his prescribed way and follow his ways. It's, it's God's way or no way, friends. That's just a simple matter of fact. By the way, if you're joining us online, welcome. I'm glad you're here today, too. And for all of you, welcome to Grace Point. Amen? That was a long introduction, wasn't it? Um, we're going to get to an Old Testament story in just a moment that I think is really illustrative of, of doing it my way and then doing it God's prescribed way. And we'll see some differences there and gain some insight. But I want to just do a quick sidebar with you. And uh, we live in a culture that thinks we can actually do life our way. And if there is a God, he'll just have to deal with it. And I, 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 that's so heady. That's so narcissistic. That's so prideful. Have you ever thought about that? Well, I'm just going to do it my way. God off to deal with it. I'm going, when can the creature say to the creator, I can do it my way? When can the pot say to the potter, I'm going to form my own life? It is just the whole epitome of arrogance to have that attitude. Uh, and I think this is leading to the destruction and downfall of many people. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Listen to this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And so even some who think they're Christ followers aren't because they're doing it for the wrong reasons. Listen, if you're going to be a Christ follower, you have got to ask Jesus into your heart. Amen? He's got the rule in your heart. There are a lot of people that are loosely associated with church who dutifully come and think they're fulfilling some kind of obligation, and that makes them okay with God. Jesus clearly says here, it does not. Even some who think they got their act together and they're, they're doing these things that we would call wonders and signs are doing them with the wrong motivation for self, you know, um, recognition and for, you know, other people appreciating them, whatever be the case. Jesus says, I know your heart of hearts. If you don't have the right heart before me, you're never going to gain access to heaven. And so I'm reminded once again in this culture that says, I will do it my way. In this culture that says, I rather rule in hell than, than serve in heaven. We have got to be doggedly committed to this understanding that the way to heaven is through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we, we have to, we have to uh, be in submission uh, to him. So with that bit of background, we're going to look at an Old Testament account of David today. And we're going to see that 
Initially, his good intention was to bring the ark of God back to Jerusalem, but he did it his way. And that was disastrous. And then we're going to see he turns around and does it God's prescribed way. And then it was successful. So here we go. David brings back the ark of God. I'm going to read from 1 Chronicles 13 to begin with. David conferred with each of his officers, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. He then said to the whole assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if it is the will of the Lord our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our people throughout the territories of Israel, and also to the priests and the Levites who are with them in their towns and pasture lands to come and join us. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. The whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to all the people. So David assembled all Israel from the uh, Shehar River in Egypt to Lebo Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath Jerim. And David and all Israel went to Bela of Judah, Kiriath Jerim, to bring up from there the ark of, the, of God the Lord, who was enthroned between the cherubim, the ark that is called by the name. They moved the ark of God from Abinadab's house on the new cart with Uzzah and Ahio guiding it. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God, with songs and with harps, with lars and timbrels, cymbals and trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Kindron, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and he struck him down because he put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of God that day and asked, how can I ever bring the ark of God to me? He did not take the ark to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed, Edom, the Gittite. The ark of God remained in the family of Obed, the Edom, in his house for three months, and the Lord blessed his household and everything he had. So here's, here's how I would summarize this first attempt of David to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. David's first attempt at returning the ark was a fiasco. You ever hear that word? Fiasco. Uh, my wife, who I love dearly, has told me that I use words that nobody knows. For instance, I'll see some run out place and I'll call it dilapidated. And she says, nobody uses the word dilapidated but you. I found out my two oldest daughters do, but they said it's because of me. Anybody else in here use the word dilapidated? Anybody? See, I knew I wasn't alone. Way to go. Would you all see Vicky after service <laughs> and tell her she's in the, she's usually in the, in the information booth and tell her he's not that strange. Amen. Any rate, it was a fiasco. This bringing the, the ark back was a fiasco. It means a complete and utter failure. It was a disaster because David did it his way. Now, have any of you ever tried to do something in your life and you'd come out with the conclusion, that was a failure, that was a fiasco? Anybody with me on that? You just do something? Usually, my fiascos start this way. I think I have a brilliant idea. Anybody there with me? As soon as those words are uttered out of my mouth, I ought to think, this is not going to end well. Because my brilliant ideas rarely do. So years ago, it was about 12 years ago here at uh, Grace Point, I thought, you know what? We just, we got to get discipleship into the hands of the people. And so this computer program came out at the time called Monvi. 
put out by John Ortberg and gang, and it was a computer disc. And you could put it into your computer, and it would take you through a whole bunch of self-awareness tests. You could figure out, you know, your learning style, whether you were, uh, you know, auditory or visual or kinesthetic. You could learn out, learn about your giftedness and you know the Holy Spirit. You could learn about your personality traits, and then it would customize discipleship to your learning style. That's brilliant, right? Jim's an Orper guy. You're, you know, I thought that was brilliant. You all did not think that was brilliant. I had very little cooperation here. In fact, people told me, I don't want to learn on a computer. Wow, have things changed in 10 years, amen? They have changed drastically. I have an automated, I mean, I got a watch that's smarter than a lot of computers were when I was growing up, right? That tells me what I should do and how I should exercise and when I should breathe and when I should settle down, what my heart rate is. I try not to look at it, but it's just, it's captivating. But back then, I was about a decade ahead of the times. And it was a colossal failure. And I laugh about it to today. It was a brilliant idea. Wrong time. Perhaps the wrong place. I don't know, you know. And so we kind of dropped Mamdi because it was not meeting the mark. But one thing, I'm going to say this in defense of myself and that fiasco. One thing I learned, 55% of you said you learned visually. Pictures, images. 20-some percent said you learned kinesthetically. You touch, you taste. 15% said I learned auditorially. Guess how we mainly presented back then? Auditorily. Guess why we do screens today? Any of you visual? Hey, I'm visual. The bigger the better, amen? I want to be immersed in imagery. I love imagery. I don't know about you. It's the way I learn. I think in pictures. I learn in pictures. And that really reinforces. So it was a fiasco on some levels. But perhaps there was a, a silver lining to that ugly duck. But at any rate... User touched the ark. That was a no-no. They were doing it wrong. They, 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 they put it in a nice, new, pretty cart, but it wasn't God's prescribed way. And, and, and he touches the, touches the ark, and God immediately kills him. Now that, you got to remember, they're, they're having a celebration here, and they're doing it with all their might, and they're having a party. It's like an Old Testament musical going on here. And you know what? A death is a downer. Amen? It kind of put a damper on the celebration moment. The priest died. He's laying there dead. Rats. This didn't work out very well. This was a fiasco. And you know what? Passion is no substitute for following God's in the prescribed way. We learned that right away here in the story of David. Passion is not a substitute uh, for following God in the prescribed manner. Now, I'm going to say this to you all of you stoic Scandinavian folks because there's a lot of you in our midst. You need a little passion. It didn't work, did it? You're just looking at me. What? You know, um, I was just talking with somebody out in the foyer who was here. Now they live elsewhere. And he says, you know, I forget how stoic Brookings is. I said, I don't. <laughs> it's a serious group of folk here. And passion should be part uh, uh, the people's response to uh, Almighty God. But it must be slaved to following God with biblical correctness in the prescribed manner. The ox pulling the cart stumbles, Yusuf touches the ark, bam, he's dead because they weren't doing it the right way and the life is sucked out of the party. 
All the passion, all the celebration in the world wasn't going to correct that. So here's some perspective. David wanted a good thing. He wanted the ark to be returned to Jerusalem. A lot of people want a good life. They want to have a meaningful, significant life. But they're pursuing it entirely wrong. They're pursuing it uh, in, in the wrong way and for the wrong reasons. David pursued bringing back the ark in a wrong way. One of the verses that has impacted me forever in my walk with Christ is one that I picked up upon, uh, picked up upon when I was just a teenager and, and first came to Christ was Proverbs fourteen twelve, and it says this: There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to what? Death. My friends, hear this proverb. This is life changing wisdom. So much of what we're in. Di- you know, inuated with what we hear over and over again and what comes our way. It seems right, but the outcome's death. The outcome is, is life taking, not life giving. And so much of, of the world is just is telling you, you're your own boss. You do what you want. You're in charge. You know, just imagine it and you can be it, Right? And I'm going, just imagine it, and you can't be it. Don't work that way. You'll hear me sing right back at the commercial. We're not living in Disneyland, amen? Just doesn't work that way. And if you buy into that philosophy, it leads to death. It leads to separation from God. The ark was not supposed to be carried by a cart, even a shiny new cart. And I've seen and heard so many people say, I want a good life, but they want to do it without God. That'll never work. Um, in the culture we live in right now, in the culture of toleration, and, and it's almost uncool and, and not very progressive to say the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. We're going to be a minority when we do that. We need to know, we need to know John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and life, and no man comes to the Father except through Christ, right? Amen? Do you believe that? Yeah, I got one. Woo. That's about as emotional as we get in Brookings. Amen. <laughs> Woo. Woo. I worked that up. Right? Good. I feel good. You know, um, but you're you, right. You, 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 but, but in this culture uh, that has so many lies and so many ways that seem right, you and I as Christ followers, we have to stick doggedly to this, uh, to this truth of John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That has to drive our understanding of our faith. We, saw, we see in the Bible lots of examples of the people of God pursuing a good thing in the wrong way. And the outcome then doesn't lead to the blessed life. It leads to a life of destruction and a life of what could have been. Take, for example, Abraham and Sarah. God comes to them and promises them in their old age that they would have an offspring, right? And then from that offspring, uh, multiple peoples would come. And they're getting up in age, and they're seeing that this thing is not being fulfilled, so they get a little nervous, so they try to take it into their own hands. And, and they come up with this brilliant idea that they'd take the servant Hagar, and Abraham would know her, it, biblically speaking, and then she would have a child, and that's how God would fulfill his promises. It's like God needed help here. Well, that didn't help at all, amen? Just created warring factions of people. It wasn't what God's plan was. He still brought a a child miraculously to Sarah. And and so there's a way that seems right, but it leads to what? Death. 
And then if you look at another one of my favorites is, is Jacob. He wanted a good thing. He wanted a, an inheritance from his dad, Isaac, who is basically at this point losing his senses. He doesn't see, he doesn't smell, he doesn't do all those things very well. And so Jacob and his mother, Rebecca, come up with an idea how to usurp Esau, you know, the oldest son's rightful inheritance as the eldest son. He, he dresses up like his, his older hairy brother and he deceives Isaac into giving him the blessing. That didn't work out well. That separated the family and to flee from his life. There's a way that seems right, but it leads to death. It leads to destruction. And so we see example after example of this very thing in the Bible. So I want to take a break from the story of the ark. And I want to talk about, as a follower of Jesus, how do you know you're doing the right thing the right way? So I just want to take a break. Can you take a break with me? Because it's kind of like watching TV now. We're at a commercial telling you how to live a healthy life with these pills or whatever. No, anyway, sorry. That's a bad analogy. A, pray asking. Am I ordering my life by God's prescribed way? That needs to become kind of a, a natural beginning point. With, when you think about the question, am I doing life the right way, you know, and living for the right kind of things? First of all, pray asking, uh, am I ordering my life by God's prescribed ways? Just begin to be authentically vulnerable before the Lord. Um, what's truly motivating you? And what's driving you? Why, why, why do you have the goals you have? Who's, who's dictating this to your life? Where, where are you getting these ideas from? And begin to ruthlessly do some self-awareness and the praying to God to have the right heart and to follow God in his prescribed ways. Secondly, check your fruit. This is one that's big for me. Check your fruit of your life. Are you experiencing the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Or are you more experiencing maybe one of the seven deadly sins? like pride or envy or gluttony, greed, sloth, sloth and, and wrath. You know, oftentimes we're driven by the need for recognition. That's pride. And that, that sets our agenda and our goal, our goal setting, you know. Or maybe you've had something happen to you that was nasty. So you're kind of saying, I'll show them. Well, I tell you what's driving you is anger and wrath. I'll get back. You know, those are not good things. They don't take you to the good spot you want to be. And the Lord said you, you want to be a person of the fruit of the spirit of, of, of Galatians 5.22 of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If these things become the dominant characteristics of your life, chances are you're, you're doing the right thing the right way. Amen? The fruit will reflect it. But now I want to get to the point that I think is my biggest point I'm almost making today in this message. This is something that I've become ruthlessly committed to personally. Use biblical language to define and direct your life. Begin to be one who uses biblical language to define and direct your life. Let me give you some examples here that will bring this one home, I think, in a good, in a good way. You do not own anything. Do you hear what I just said? You are a steward, not an owner. Start using biblical language. Your body is not your own. It's bought with a price. It is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Steward it to the glory of God. Take care of it to the glory of God. It's not your body. It's his body. Your money is not your own. Every good gift comes from heaven above. Steward it to the glory of God. It's not your own. It's not your security. It's not what you work for. You steward your, your, your finances. Steward your talents. 
Steward your time. Begin to use the word steward. I'm a steward of the good things that God gives me. You will live differently for different reasons. Here's another one. Are you okay? Some of you are just staring at me like, oh. Hmm. Anyway, feelings. We live in a feeling-directed culture. Listen to me. I don't care about your feelings. (laughs) Some of you are laughing nervously here. You don't fall in love and fall out of love. Forget that language. That's worldly language. People with marriage problems, oh, I, I just fell out of love. I don't care. It's not about falling in or falling out. Feelings don't lead. Obedience leads. Staying faithful to the covenant leads. You let that lead you, and then God says feelings will follow. Feelings slave to obedience, not the other way around. Oh, I feel like I need to do this. No, 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 don't do it then. I know sometimes that's just English language and it's mushy. I understand that. Feelings are to follow. They're not to lead our decision-making. Right? Use biblical language. Be ruthless in that regard. It'll change how you do your life. And feelings follow, they don't lead. Then be accountable. Proverbs 27, 17 says, iron sharpens iron. So share your aspirations and share your thoughts with a trusted brother or sister in the Lord. And if you're going to make some major decisions or you're going to do some major pursuits, bounce it off them and see what they think. We are masterful at self-deception and rationalization. And oftentimes what you need is a good brother or sister in the Lord to say, that's wrong. What are you doing here? That doesn't make sense, right? And then have the humility uh, uh, to listen to the counsel. All right. So that's enough of the, of the break here from the story. Let's go back to David and the ark. Here's the result. David experienced frustration and fear for doing it his way. That's his, his outcome was what? Frustration. And he was fearful. He was angry. He was upset. It didn't work out. And his fear do, drove him away from God and he gave up the pursuit. Um, so the story of the ark continues now over in, in, in chapter 15 of First Chronicles. And now we see David do it again, but he's going to do it in the prescribed way, the God-ordained way. Um, so I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 and then jump down to verse 11 uh, through 15. Listen to this. After David had constructed buildings for himself in the city of David, he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God because the Lord chose them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him forever. David assembled all Israel and Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to the place he had prepared for it. Then David summoned Zadok and Abathar, the priests, and Uriel, Asaiah, Joel, Shimeah, Eliah, and Aminadab, the Levites, and he said to them, you are the heads of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves and bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I prepared for it. It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him of how to do it in the prescribed way. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, and the Levites carried the ark of God with poles on their shoulders as Moses had commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. So David gets to what I think is key and insightful understanding of what it means to live an unordinary life. It means to follow God's prescribed ways. David's second attempt to bring back the ark was biblically based, right? And he inquired how how to bring it back in the prescribed way. I had to laugh. First hour, I was talking with um, Abby Geetson. 
who's Ben Skeetsman's wife, and she's in the medical profession. She said, I thought you were doing a medical thing here. You know, you got prescriptions going on. You got things that sound like drugs being read here when you read the Levites and, you know, all this. And we got to take it in the right way or you die. And I thought, I don't mean to make it a medical sermon. It's not. Okay, you didn't think that was funny? Okay, we'll move on. Um, So we're on this week three of looking at God um, and looking at life looking at the art of being unordinary and, and reimagining our lives, right? Um, and we're supposed to be rethinking and reinterpreting how, how we do our Christianity. And listen, we need to be passionately committed to following God, but it needs to be to the prescribed way he's ordained. We need to be passionately following God in a prescribed way. Then we're going to experience his power. And God laid out how to handle the ark. He had told them already, you carry it with poles and Levites carry it. Even if you have a shiny new cart, it's no replacement for doing it God's way. And we have to become people in our day and generation who are ruthlessly committed to living life God's prescribed way with passion and with devotion. And then we're going to see the power of God in our lives. But I think even in the Christian community, what what the problem is, we are not living life in the prescribed way. We're doing it our way and we're running into problems frequently that lead to destruction. So I want to just kind of go to the rest of the story here with David and just talk to you more on a heart level as I finish out this morning. Um, uh, Some things I take away from David that just to me are just exceptionally important to, to experiencing this unordinary life in Christ. Here's this insight. David was first and foremost a devoted servant of the living God. We just kind of understand it. He was willing to say, I messed up. This was a fiasco. Now I'm going to do it God's way. He had the humility to go back and, and, and do it God's way. And um, I draw this particular insight from 1 Chronicles 16, verses 25 through 29. So let me read that to you, okay? Listen to this. So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of units of thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. Because God had helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord, seven bulls and seven rams were sacrificed. Now David was clothed in a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who were carrying the ark, as were the musicians and Kenaniah who was in charge of the singing of the choirs. David also wore a linen ephod. So all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouts, with the sounding of ram's horns and trumpets and the cymbals and the playing of lyres and harps. As the ark of the covenant of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David dancing and celebrating, she despised him in her heart. David dressed like a Levite. Why? Because it wasn't about him. This moment was about God. He didn't want attention drawn to himself. He didn't dress in his kingly robes to have people adore him and and, and honor him. He didn't want to stand out. He wanted to stand in line with the rest of the Levites and worship God in awe and wonder. That's what made him so great. That's why he was a man devoted after God's own heart. He didn't want to stand out. He was willing to diminish while God increased. He was willing to have God be the center stage, the focus point of everybody to the point where he dressed just like the Levites. And that's why Michael despised him. She thought, you're laying down your kingly honor to be like everybody else? Yep, because in the face of God, that's what we are. It's equal ground, amen? David understood that. And he worshiped God with all of his might and he was undignified. David was willing to be undignified as he passionately worshiped God. See, following God's prescribed ways with passion is powerful. 
And it's, it's just, it's life-changing. And the question I have for all of you as we kind of close this thing out today is this. Are you willing to be undignified before God? Are you willing to just lose yourself in him and let him become great in your sight and for you to diminish, for you to be basically on the sidelines applauding him and exalting and magnifying him? If we want to be unordinary, if we really want to be the Christ followers I think that we're supposed to be, it can't be about us. It's got to be all about worshiping Christ and God. Amen, right? And I mentioned this last week that, um, that um, I grew up in the Jesus People movement. That's where I cut my teeth and my faith. And I watched this movie, Jesus Revolution, here recently. And I, it brought me back with tears to those days in my own life, growing up as a teenager and running into Christ as a young teenager. And I remember coming to him not caring what anybody thought. So broken and so discouraged I was from the life that I had been living and the reality that I had been experiencing. I said, I don't care what anyone. And when they made an altar call, that, I remember at that little Trout Lake camp in northern Minnesota, I went up there and I cried for two hours at the altar. I didn't care what anybody said or thought. I was so hungry for Christ. I was so wanting him. And then when the Jesus people movement came out, you know, all of us Stoic Lutherans, we lost that Stoicism. We became crazy. And I was on the floor dancing with people. Are you okay with that? Some of you are going, oh my goodness, this guy's crazy. I was so freed from what was captivating me before. I was feeling this sense of awe who God was. And every time we got together, I never wanted to stay in. Those services would go three to four hours. And we'd say, done already? It was just this moving of the Holy Spirit on us. And it was because we were willing to be undignified. We didn't care. We just wanted God exalted in our culture and our times. Amen? And it was something that forever changed my life. And I think David, he's a man after God's own heart because that's who he is. He was undignified and he would dress in his underwear and glorify God along with everybody else. He didn't need to stand out. He joined the crowd in adoring his God. Are you there? Because if you want to be unordinary and if you want to learn insight from this story, that's what you'll take away. David did it wrong. He did it his way. It led to death and disaster. He did it God's prescribed way. And all of a sudden, there's an anointing there. There's power there. And God shows up. And, and they celebrate like crazy. So, at any rate, um, we're going to end this message today by reading part of David's psalm of praise after this all took place from um, uh, First Chronicles 16. So I would ask you to stand. Would you please with me? And we're going to read this out loud. And there's a couple ways we can read it. One, we can read it dispassionately or we can read it passionately. Which way do you think I want you to read it? Yeah, like you mean it. This is David. He's exalting God after seeing this, the return of the ark. He's, he's jacked up. He's pumped up. And people of God, listen, this is all about praising God, centering your life on God. And I want to encourage you as we read this together, say it with some passion and say it like you mean it and use it as a worship moment. Here we go. Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all of his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord in his strength. Seek his face always. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. 
Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his dwelling place. Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Would you bow your heads? Lord God, I pray that this would be our attitude, that our lives would be totally and 100% centered on you. I want to pray for anyone in our midst today, Jesus, that doesn't know you, that perhaps knows about you, and perhaps wonders what, what would happen if they die. And I want to pray for such a one, Lord, at this very moment to give their life to Jesus Christ. Just to say, Jesus, come into my heart and be my Savior. And Lord Jesus, I know you're faithful to answer that prayer. And I pray for such a one, Lord, that you'd baptize them right now in the person of the Holy Spirit. That they live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And I pray, Lord, in general, that all of us would be baptized and filled with the person of the Holy Spirit. That we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit within us so that it's Jesus that lives and moves and has his being within us and that we would then become passionate followers who live according to the prescribed ways that you've ordained, Lord, that we can experience your power, your transformative power in our lives. May it be so, Jesus, by your name and through your blood. Amen.